rise and shine history buffs it's time for another episode of monday morning general here we give you the play-by-play and analysis on battles from antiquity to the 20th century i'm brendan hanging out with bjorn and today we start a new series on the consequential world war ii naval battle of midway so bjorn this is a pretty important battle in world war ii history and maybe even world history so why is this thing important yeah so you know it's important for a couple different reasons you know first Significant turning point in the Pacific theater of the Second World War. Obviously, this is arguably the most important, most pivotal battle in the Pacific Mm -hmm. during World War II. We're going to see how prior to this battle, Japan had been moving forward. They'd been on a roll. They'd been winning battle after battle, expanding their empire throughout the entirety of the Pacific. But here is where the first major U.S. victory occurs. You know, there was this Battle of the Coral Sea, which was... You know, you could argue either way. Maybe it had huge gains. It might have stopped some advance into Australia. This U.S. victory at Midway, it stops Japan's expansion into the Pacific. It's basically what Carl von Clausewitz would refer to as the culminating point of attack. It is that moment, the the time where the, the scales tip and the Japanese empire is no longer capable of continuing their advance and they have to move into a defensive posture. That is what happens at the Battle of Midway. It's also significant for a couple of different other reasons. First major naval engagement between the U.S. and Japan since the attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, You're going to see that it's significant because the role that intelligence plays in code breaking, and Brendan, this is kind of your avenue and your area. We're going to have you kind of expound on that later in the episode, but we're going to be able to intercept and decode Japanese messages, and it allows us to prepare and anticipate what the Japanese were doing uh, prior to the the fact that they did it. And that is going to play a major role. And then lastly, the Battle of Midway is an important battle to all of world history because it's the legacy of the U.S. naval history, right? So the victory at Midway, remarkable feat, naval strategy, naval leadership, helped establish the United States as a dominant naval power in the Pacific, The battle inspires future generations of naval officers and helps to shape the tactics and strategies of modern naval warfare. So what we're talking about there, modern naval warfare, uh, World War I, the big dreadnought battleships, that was the theme. If you had a navy in World War I, if you were seen as a powerful navy in World War I, it was all battleships, dreadnoughts, big 12 to 15 inch guns, as much Uh, explosive power as you could send down range was the way you were going to win the battle as they saw it. But what we saw at the Battle of Midway is that no longer is a naval might judged based off of the size of their battleships, but the number of carriers and the planes that are on those carriers, that is the measure of a naval force. And that moves into today's naval uh, forces and strategies for warfare. So that's that's maybe one of the most significant takeaways from the Battle of Midway is we see the power of the aircraft carrier just completely overshadows what we had previously thought was important, which was the dreadnought battleship. Yeah, Bjorn, that's so right. You never hear about anybody talking about like, look how many destroyers the United States has, really. Right, like people that are really into you know military strategy are going to talk about that stuff, but like a, just a general layperson that, you know, a person that lives in the United States, all we know about is the carrier and how many carriers that the United States have, how many carriers does China, Russia, the UK have, right? That's how people determine how powerful your Navy is and by extension, how powerful your your military is. Yeah. The aircraft carrier and these carrier fleets that we have today are incredibly uh, powerful, but they're also an extension of our national power. Yeah. 
you know, we can extend that power throughout the globe just by sending a carrier where we need it to go. All right. Let's jump into the background of the Battle of Midway. So want to get into a quick brief history of World War II and the Pacific Theater, and then we'll jump into uh, more concrete details on the battle. So World War II began in the Pacific Theater on December 7th, 1941, when Japanese forces attacked Pearl Harbor. They killed 2,403 Americans and damaged or destroyed numerous ships and aircraft. Over the course of seven hours, there were coordinated Japanese attacks on the U.S.L. Philippines, Guam, and Wake Islands, and the British Empire in Malaya, Singapore, and Hong Kong. The following day, the U.S. declared war on Japan. So, you know, big kickoff here. Pearl Harbor, surprise attack on the United States. Yamamoto had some very specific goals. Yamamoto, admiral of the Japanese Navy, wanted to destroy. And he was like one of the first proponents of the aircraft. He really understood the power that the aircraft carrier could bring to a Navy. And he wanted to destroy the U.S. fleet at Pearl Harbor. So... He saw this as a way for them, for the Japanese, to prevent any action the U.S. Navy could have in interfering with Japanese operations in Southeast Asia. A little more on this. Why is the United States involved in Southeast Asia politics? Uh, you know, Japanese empire was on the roll prior to World War II. Prior to us getting involved, they had invaded Manchuria. They'd moved down into Southeast Asia. And at, a, at the point, 1941, the United States has basically said, hey, this is, this is not okay. We had reduced our, our exports of oil to the Japanese. We had, re, we had reduced our exports of aluminum, things that are incredibly necessary in continuing on your, your military expansion. And the Japanese felt that if they were going to continue their expansion, and remember, the Japanese are expanding for one reason, and that is for resources. Now, they're they're an island and they have not, they don't have a lot of resources. The one major resource. I mean, Japan is basically a mountain, right? It is a, like it is a series of mountains. It's there. And there's not a lot of places for them to do agriculture. And there's not a lot of other natural resources that you need to fuel a modern economy, right? There's no oil. There's no natural gas. uh, You know, there's no aluminum or tin or coal or any of the stuff that you need to run a modern empire. Yeah, and they felt trapped. They said, you know, there was an isolationist policy that was going on in the early 1900s. They felt that their national security depended on their ability to provide the resources that they needed for themselves, and that included expanding. They felt that the United States would get involved in this war should they push too far. And they thought, hey, what's better, having America involved with a bunch of aircraft carriers and naval forces or America getting involved with no naval air force carriers? I think the latter, Bjorn. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So that's what they're going to do. But going back to this quote that you've got, uh, where Yamamoto is having this conversation with the prime minister, he says... Uh, in in identifying a potential attack and fight against the United States, the power of the United States, he says that I can guarantee to put up a tough fight for the first six months, but I have absolutely no confidence about what would happen if it went on for two or three years. I hope you will make every effort to avoid war with America. Now, it's like, Brendan, it's like, it's what, like he's telling the future here. Oh, he absolutely is, Brendan, because the crazy part about it is that when he says this, so remember, uh, World War II in the Pacific Theater begins for the United States December 7th, 1941. Well, the Battle of Midway is going to take place almost exactly six months from the Battle of Pearl Harbor. So he's going to say, 
that we can win and we can put up a fight against the United States for six months. But that is the point in time where I cannot guarantee that we will continue to win. And he was almost to the day spot on. So after Japan's surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, the country's leaders believed they could rapidly expand their empire in the Pacific without significant opposition from the United States. You know, they didn't kill any aircraft carriers at Pearl Harbor, but they they had a major moral or, you know, um, victory, uh, mind victory, right, uh, at Pearl Harbor. So they got they got the United States on their heels and they believe that they can get into this expansion. So they start the strategy called the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere, uh, which aimed to create an Asian-dominated sphere of influence in the region, right? Bjorn talked about like just this crazy, super-fast expansion of Japan. So to achieve that goal, Japan planned to quickly capture and occupy strategic territories throughout Southeast Asia, like the Philippines, Malaya, and the Dutch East Indies. By doing so, Japan would quickly gain access to the region's valuable natural resources, including, like we said, oil, rubber, and tin. So in the early months of the war, Japan was really successful in achieving its expansionist goals. They quickly captured much of Southeast Asia, to include Singapore and the Philippines. And they also launched a successful attack on the British colony of Hong Kong and took over the strategic island of Guam. So they're like, yeah, that first phase, that went really good. Uh, oh, it went really good. so well. It went so yeah. well. And, so, and, and that's one of the things. They get like this huge head, you know, like my, my head is too big for my body as a result because they were so... They were so surprised well, by how quickly we fell. Those, that last nuts. couple minutes of us talking, that all happened in a month. Pearl Harbor and then all of the territory that they captured was basically a month uh, of well, just them remember, going super fast. Remember, the Philippines, that was held by the United States yep. at this point in time. And that is known as the one time in American history where the most American soldiers were forced to surrender in all of our history. Right there yep. at the Philippines. We will 100% talk about the battle for the Philippines in, in a future episode, because it's an incredibly amazing story uh, that we have to tell. Um, but yeah, it, that was, a, that was a, a big, another loss for the United States morally and in, in, in their minds. And that, that was the first phase, but you said it, it started, it started and basically ended that first phase, January, 1942. Yeah, and was so ends, they're like, like well, within a month. let's start working on phase two. And they just, they kick it off. So despite early defeats, the U.S. began to make progress in the Pacific in early 1942. So in April, U.S. forces launched a successful bombing raid on Tokyo, led by Lieutenant Colonel Jimmy Doolittle, which is like the best name, by the way. <laughs> Colonel Doolittle, that's great. So the raid had little strategic value, uh, but it did help boost American morale, which had been shattered from things like Pearl Harbor and the Philippines that we talked about. And it showed that Japan was not invincible. So Bjorn, what was the Doolittle raid? Yeah, this raid was a really unique raid. Like you said, it had very little strategic value. But remember, we had just suffered loss after loss after loss. And the American people are reading the newspaper saying, you know, they open it in the beginning of the day and they say, what more defeats have we suffered in the Pacific? How can we possibly stop this from occurring? And one day they open the newspaper and they see that we had actually slapped the Japanese back. And that was what the Doolittle Raid was. We sent 16 United States Army Air Force B-25 Mitchell bombers, all right? These are big bombers. And we had to reduce the weight because we were sending them off of the USS Hornet, an aircraft carrier. Now, normally, bombers need a whole lot more uh, runway in order to yeah, take off. these are land-based you know, aircraft. Yeah, yeah, they need to get up to speed before they can get off the ground. But what we're going to do is we have to reduce the weight in order to, you know, there's a ratio. You want to carry as many explosives as you possibly can, but at the same time, you need to be able to defend yourself. And so fly you need home. Armament. 
and fly home yeah. and you need fuel. But here's the thing, Brendan, they knew that they were not going to be able to land on the aircraft carrier. So they were going to take yeah. off, but they knew they couldn't land. And so the whole idea is if you're going to make a strike against the Japanese, you have to take off from an aircraft carrier and then you continue on. And the goal was to land in China. So remember, the Chinese were fighting against the Japanese as well. And our plan was to take off from the USS Hornet, bomb strategic locations in Tokyo to you know slap the Japanese back, and then and then land somewhere in China. Now, if you've watched the movie Pearl Harbor, you see this whole thing in action, but you notice that uh, at the end, they get as close as they can, but then there are some Japanese fishing boats or some Japanese patrol boats that potentially wired back home saying, hey, something's here, at which point they have to take off earlier. Most of the American planes missed their mark. They were unable to land in the locations that they were supposed to, and a lot of them were captured. And some of those some of those individuals who were on those bombers were killed by the Japanese. Others spent the entirety of the rest of the war in prisoner of war camps. Uh, but the raid, militarily insignificant, but it shocked the Japanese, and it showed them that they were not invulnerable. And it shows a gap in the defenses around the Japanese home island, and it shows, number one, that they are vulnerable. And the American people opened the newspaper on the next day and they saw that we were, in fact, fighting back. Also, Japan's rapid expansion begins to strain their military resources and supply lines. And they begin to face significant opposition from Allied forces. Like we talked about earlier, the Battle of Coral Sea happens in May 1942. And that marks the first major setback for Japan. And then in June 1942, the Battle of Midway occurs. And that marks the decisive turning point in the Pacific theater for World War II. Despite these setbacks, Japan's leaders remained committed to their expansionist goals, and the Pacific theater of the war would continue to be fiercely contested until its conclusion in 1945. So we're talking another three years of this after the Battle of Midway. So Bjorn, that is the lead up, right? So we got Pearl Harbor happens, Americans get pissed off, and Japan expands really quickly. And then we start to take you know little steps to to kind of turn the tide, uh, do a little raid, Battle of Coral Sea, and we get set up now for the Battle of Midway. So before we jump now, into Brendan, yeah. real quick, I, would, I just want to make this quick note. It, it's important for individuals to understand the first six months of the Second World War for the United States, in the Pacific especially, was one of high anxiety. I, we were suffering setback after setback. We've lost territory. We've lost ground. And people are scared. And to kind of provide you with a little bit of a, a story of how scared individuals were, especially even our government, um, they, they had uh, one very big concern, and that was that the Japanese were going to capture the island of Hawaii. And one of the major concerns with Hawaii was we would have lost a huge naval base. We would have lost a refueling station, a big, a big aspect of our ability to support our campaigns in the Pacific. But one other fear was that the Japanese would capture many millions of U.S. dollars. And in capturing many millions of U.S. dollars, they would be able to then utilize those that currency to purchase more weapons of war throughout the world to help spur more of an advance. So we were afraid that it was going to turn into a snowballing effect where they would capture our territory, use our money and fuel their war effort. And so what you can actually do today is you can find United States currency from the 1940s that has a big a big print on it that says Hawaii. Hmm. So you can find a US dollar that says Hawaii on it. And what that was designed for was in the event that Japan captured the islands of Hawaii, 
that money would instantly have been deregulated and would not have been identified as legal tender to the United States. So it was a way in which those U.S. bills would be able to be removed from circulation instantly should the Japanese have captured that island to prevent them from receiving tens of millions of dollars. That's how concerned we were that the United States was going to suffer a loss at Hawaii, that we started printing money to prepare for an event of Hawaii being captured. So people up until this battle here, the Battle of Midway, people are scared. People are worried that we are not going to have what it takes to capture the Japanese uh, forces to destroy them and to push them back. All right, MMG audience, that is another currency fact brought to you by Bjorn. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let's talk about the Battle of Midway. Let's get into the minds of our admirals here. So let's talk about Yamamoto first. So Admiral Yamamoto's primary strategic goal is to eliminate the American carriers, which were the biggest threat to the Japanese Pacific expansion goals that the Japanese Empire had. Uh, and they had already like seen what a carrier can do with a Doolittle rig, right? So Yamamoto reasoned if he could attack the main U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor again, mm-hmm. it would cause the American fleet, including the carriers, to come out and fight, right? So carriers, like, we're talking about a big ocean. The Pacific Ocean is massive. It is huge. And it is hard to find a single solitary ship. Carriers are big, but they're hard to find. You have to drag them out of hiding and into conflict so that you can destroy them. Yamamoto realized that the Americans had increased the strength of their land-based air power on the Hawaiian Islands since the previous year's attack. And it was now too risky for Japan to attack Pearl Harbor directly. So Yamamoto chose a tiny atoll on the northwest end of the Hawaiian Island chain called Midway. Midway was outside the range of almost all the American aircraft stationed at the main Hawaiian Islands. All right, Midway Island. Quick little geography lesson here. Small atoll located in the Pacific Ocean, roughly halfway between Hawaii and Japan. Prior to the outbreak of World War II, Midway was a U.S. territory and served as an important refueling station for commercial military aircraft. It's not big. It is two very small islands, and there's like a runway on one of them, and one of them is a dune. So it is like, it's not like a territory like Guam is or like America Samoa. It is two tiny islands that we have some capability to refuel and fly aircraft off of. Oh, an atoll, Bjorn. Uh, It's a ring-shaped coral reef island or series of islets. The atoll surrounds a body of water called a lagoon. Oh, wow. That sounds like a very uh, wonderful place. They are beautiful. I'll just go look up what Midway (laughs) looks like. It's it's beautiful looking. Tensions between Japan and the U.S. obviously have escalated in the months leading up to the war. Midway Island became increasingly important as a strategic military base. Uh, Later on, the U.S. Navy would establish a naval air station on the island and build a runway uh, to support uh, its operation. Midway wasn't really important for Japan. There's no resources there. But the Japanese believed the Americans would consider Midway a vital outpost of Pearl Harbor. And they were right. The U.S. established a submarine base there after the battle. And Midway's airstrips also served as forward staging points for bomber attacks on Wake Island later in the war. All right, Bjorn, let's get into Japan's plan here to capture Midway. This is very complicated. So we'll we'll go through this. It's, it's, it's complicated, but that's just how the Japanese plan these things. So. The plan, the operation was known as Operation MI, and it was a two-pronged attack aimed at drawing the U.S. Pacific Fleet into a decisive battle and destroying it. So let's talk about this first this first prong of the attack. And I don't know if it's really a prong, maybe more diversionary, maybe something else, but uh, the Japanese army had planned an assault on the Alaskan territory of the Aleutian Islands. So Bjorn, what, what is going on with that? Yeah, it's you know it's important to understand that the Japanese military system and even their government, you know, they had an emperor, but the emperor didn't have a lot of power. The power was in the hands of the military, and there were a number of individuals, bunch of generals, bunch of admirals who were basically 
controlling the government, they were controlling the empire, and they were making the decisions. So what would have to happen in order to coordinate an offensive such as the Battle of Midway, you know, Yamamoto would have to go and talk to the Japanese army uh, generals and they would have to coordinate together and they'd have to decide. But remember, there's no one person sitting at the top. There's no commander in chief. There's a whole bunch of chiefs. And so the the deal was is that the Japanese army had identified the Aleutian Islands, that that kind of crescent-sized uh, island chain throughout the... Yeah, the it, moved, it moved southwest from the territory of Alaska into the Pacific. Yeah, from, exactly. They had identified that as an important aspect in which they could... Uh, they need, they wanted it. And part of the reason was it would prevent the, the Japanese from using land-based bombers. It would have been out of range of U.S. land bombers in Alaska. They would have been... They felt safer. Um, and, and so they're going to pinpoint the Aleutians as their kind of their goal. Well, as the Navy is choosing Midway and more importantly, the American carriers as their goal. Now, one could argue that the American carriers were incredibly, vastly more significant to the Japanese war uh, that they were trying to push on. I don't think that is a tough, I don't think that is a tough argument to make there. Yeah, absolutely not. But the Imperial Japanese army wanted to occupy these uh, in order to keep their own home island out of range of U.S. land-based bombers, most Americans feared that if they had the Aleutian Islands occupied, it would be used as basis for the Japanese bombers to attack strategic targets and population centers along the west coast of the United States. And so it's it's a six one way, half a dozen the other. If the Japanese have it, they could use their bombers yep. against us. If the U.S. has it, they could use their bombers against Japan. Now, the Japanese operations in the Aleutians, they call it Operation AL, doesn't really play the game that, that, that strategically they wanted because they wanted to remove more American forces from the Battle of Midway. But in all reality, it just removes Japanese forces from the Battle of yeah, Midway. Yeah, there's a lot of historians, Bjorn, that, that kind of talk about the Aleutian Islands as that first prong of the attack that's supposed to happen earlier and yet divert American forces to the Aleutian Islands. But in reality, the two operations were planned to happen simultaneously. The invasion of the Aleutians and the attack on Midway were supposed to happen basically the same day. It was only because of a you know a misspoken plan or whatever that the attack on the Aleutians happened the day before Midway. So there really was no there was not any time for the Americans to divert ships to the Aleutians. So yeah, it was not a it was not a diversion. It was supposed to be simultaneous. And you're right. It just took away. Japanese land and sea forces away from the more important attack on Midway. Yeah, so let's get into that, Brendan. What what is the this you call the first one the first prong of the attack? Give us the second yeah. prong here. On so Midway. the second prong of the attack was the main assault on Midway Island itself. Typical of Japanese naval planning during World War II, Yamamoto's battle plan was exceedingly complex. It involved a coordinated air and sea attack using aircraft carriers, battleships, cruisers, destroyers, and submarines. The Japanese fleet would approach Midway from the northwest and launch a surprise attack on the U.S. defenders. Once the U.S. defenses had been weakened, the Japanese would launch a second wave of attacks to finish off the remaining U.S. forces. So kind of like we talked about earlier, attack Midway to draw the carriers into the battle and then follow the airplanes back and destroy the aircraft carriers. Yamamoto's plan was ambitious, and he hoped that it would force the U.S. into a decisive battle that would end the war in the Pacific. If Yamamoto can destroy the U.S. carriers, they can't build them fast enough to defend Hawaii and maybe even the West Coast of the United States. So this would really like set the stage for Japan to move into that further expansionist goal and to cripple the United States in the West. 
Yeah. And let's let's talk real, take a quick tactical pause here to talk about what could have happened. All right. Let's imagine that Yamamoto is completely successful in this in this endeavor. Mm. He attacks Midway. He destroys the runway at Midway. He keeps the, the ground, the land-based aircraft on the ground. The U.S. carriers come out. They are completely decimated by by the Japanese forces. Strategic major victory for the Japanese. Many historians agree that if that would have occurred, Hawaii absolutely would have been captured. There's no question. But they also determined that the war would have most probably lasted another two years. Now, there's no real reliable argument that can be made that says the Japanese successfully invade the West Coast of the United States. None of that. But what we have, what we really come to conclude is that it's going to take the, the United States two more years to win this war. They will, in fact, win the war if they don't negotiate with the Japanese. You know, it, they capture, the Japanese capture Hawaii, and then they could have sent their ambassadors to broker some peace deal that, that could have possibly happened. But had it been a knockdown, drawn-out fight with the Japanese winning at the Battle of Midway, most historians agree the United States still would have won the war, but instead of winning it in 1945, they would have gone until 1947 to win this war. And like you said, maybe some deal would have been brokered and Japan gets to keep all of its acquisitions in Southeast Asia. And then there's peace. And now Japan is their empire now is all over instead of just in Japan. So that, that and the United States has 49 states yeah. instead of 50. So as part of this plan, Yamamoto felt that deception would be required to lure the U.S. fleet into a fatally compromised situation. He dispersed his forces with his battleships spread out. The, the supporting battleships and cruisers trailed Vice Admiral Nagumo's carrier force by hundreds of miles, and they were ready to attack weakened U.S. ships after Nagumo's carriers had battled them. This was a common naval tactic at the time, but there was a major problem. The ships were not in formation to support each other. The battleships couldn't see each other. They couldn't see the aircraft carriers. So everything was, they were super spread out to give Yamamoto flexibility in how he attacks. But then once someone gets into contact, there's no supporting forces to come in and help help that, that solitary ship. So that was a, a critical weakness of Yamamoto's plan. Absolutely. Especially when you take into effect that this this strategic, you know, Yamamoto's tactics are utilizing a, an older style of warfare, one that focuses heavily, like he said, on battleship. Now, one of the assets of a battleship is also their anti-aircraft capabilities. Had the Japanese fleet been closer together, they would have been able to support each other when the American planes fly over and those battleships would have been able to better defend their carriers. Now, when they're spread out, they're negating that major asset that they have. And that's going to be one of the one of the real critical errors of the Japanese during this. So the light carriers of the trailing forces and Yamamoto's three battleships were unable to keep pace with the main carriers that Nagumo sailing and they could not have sailed in company with them. So like Nagumo's just like way out ahead. It's like when you're walking with your kids and your kid just takes off. He's like, that's what Nagumo's doing. And like, I'm back here. I got the stroller. I got the dog. You know, I got my coffee. I'm slow. So that's what's happening here. The, the, the main carrier is just speed up and they just leave. No, yeah, no aircraft, no scouting planes. They don't have anything. So the distance between the Japanese vessels had grave implications during the battle. The invaluable reconnaissance capability of the scout planes carried by the cruisers and the carriers, as well as the additional anti-aircraft capability of the cruisers and the other two battleships of the Congo class in the trailing forces were unavailable to Nagumo. So Nagumo's out there all by himself with just his main carriers and his aircraft. 
You know, I wonder if the major successes that Nagumo and Yamamoto have had in the Pacific so far have kind of led them to underestimate American capabilities because look, I mean, they're spread out. They're not taking any major uh, reconnaissance. They're going to send out when this battle begins, they're going to send out seven planes that that is they're they're going over tens of thousands of square miles to try and find these carriers and they're going to use seven planes. This is this is not that part of the plan doesn't make sense. From my mind, what Yamamoto is trying to do is use his main carriers with the planes to try to locate and attack midway, pull the carriers out, and then once they find out where the American carriers are, then move the battleships in position to destroy the aircraft carriers with the battleships instead of with the planes. So I think that's what he's thinking. But so that's why he has the battleships so spread out so that they can attack midway in multiple different vectors. But it just doesn't well, he- it doesn't occur like that. And he must also be assuming that the U.S. carriers need to be drawn out. Right. Uh, one thing that we're going to see in this battle is that those carriers are not going to need to be drawn out. They're already out. And so had those initial large carriers been able to strike midway early, then everyone else catches up. Then we have an even Steven type right. of fight. But I think that that's one major assumption. But I think there's another major assumption uh, that that Yamamoto has. What's that? So Yamamoto believed that the U.S. carriers, USS Enterprise and Hornet, were the only carriers available to the U.S. Pacific. During the Battle of the Coral Sea one month earlier, the USS Lexington had been sunk and Yorktown suffered so much damage that the Japanese believed that she had been lost as well. The Yorktown was severely damaged, Bjorn, but it was not destroyed. The U.S. were able to tow it back uh, to the yard in Hawaii uh, at Pearl Harbor and and fix the Yorktown. Experts estimated that it would take three months in the Naval Yard to put the required uh, repairs to her to fix her and get her back into fighting shape. That substantial damage, though, had been miraculously repaired enough in 48 hours to get back into the fight. That's so nuts that that experts, the individuals, the engineers who are there at port look at this bad boy and they say, yeah, this is going to take three months. And then everyone else is like, nah, with American ingenuity and some yeah. real work, we're going to get her out. Took forty eight hours. That that's a major asset that we're going to see putting uh, having that extra third ship when when this battle occurs. You know the the Japanese are going to bring four major carriers into this, and the United States is going to bring three major carriers into this. But when you take into account the land based forces that are on Midway, this this game is going to be almost even, and one should never go into an offensive battle. Even with your yeah, so let's get into U.S. Admiral Chester Nimitz's strategy for defending Midway. So to do battle with an enemy expected to muster four or five carriers, Admiral Chester W. Nimitz, Commander in Chief, Pacific Ocean Areas, needed every available flight deck. He already had Vice Admiral William Halsey's two carriers, the Enterprise and the Hornet Task Force, at hand. The Halsey was stricken with shingles and had to be replaced by Rear Admiral Raymond A. Spruance, Halsey's escort commander. Nimitz also hurriedly recalled Rear Admiral Frank Jack Fletcher's task force, including the carrier Yorktown, from the southwest Pacific area. Despite estimates that Yorktown, damaged in the Battle of Coral Sea, would require several months of repairs. What Admiral Nimitz wants, Admiral Nimitz gets. So they found out the Yorktown had her elevator still intact, and the flight deck was also largely intact. So the Pearl Harbor Naval Shipyard worked around the clock, and in 48 hours... The Yorktown was restored to a battle-ready state, judged good enough for two or three weeks of operations. Her flight deck was patched, and whole sections of internal frames were cut out and replaced. Repairs continued, even as she sortied, with work crews from the repair ship USS Vestal still aboard. So they're just like, we got to get this thing out. We're going to fix the things that need to get fixed. 
Like, we're not going to fix the toilets. We're not going to fix, you know, the bunks. We are going to fix the flight deck. We're going to get the elevators fixed up, and we're going to get her going, and we're going to get her to Midway to take part in this battle. Bjorn, the other thing to consider with aircraft carriers is the aircraft that go aboard them. And the Yorktown had lost a lot of a lot of its aircraft during the Coral Sea battle. How did they go about re- replenishing uh, its air group? Yeah, this is going to be the, the main difference between the United States and the Japanese. So the Japanese, they felt, and their, their strategy called for flight groups to stay together. And so if you're... Yeah, flight groups main, to stay together and to stay with the aircraft carrier that those aircraft are a part of, right? So they train right. together as a unit, the ship and the aircraft. Yep. So if my, you know, if my uh, patch says the Hiryu or the Soryu, uh, the Kaga, the Akagi, if that's what my flight patch is, that's the that's the carrier that I fly with. If I'm Japanese and I'm a, and I'm a fighter pilot or a bomber or a torpedo pilot, that's what I fly with. But the United States recognized that no matter what, a aircraft carrier that is half filled with planes is half as effective. And so the United States basically went out and they found planes wherever they could find planes. So the Yorktown's partially depleted air group was rebuilt using planes and pilots wherever they could be found. They they had tried to get the the USS Saratoga uh, to be ready to, to play in this battle, but uh, it was undergoing repairs. It was on the American West Coast. It was unable to make it to the battle. And so as a result, they utilized her planes. They're like, hey, if we can't get this this carrier going, we can at least get these planes where they need to go. So not only do we have planes from the Saratoga augmenting the Yorktown's aircraft carriers, but we're also going to see a good number of land-based planes based at Midway. You're going to see four squadrons of PBYs. So that's 31 planes. They're long-range reconnaissance. Now, remember, I just told you that the Japanese are going to have something like seven reconnaissance planes. So here on Midway, the United States has 31 planes capable of going long distances and finding the enemy, whereas the Japanese are going to have seven. So we're going to have, the United States will have four times as many uh, reconnaissance planes. They're going to have six brand new Grumman Avengers. The Marine Corps is going to have uh, 19 Dauntless or Douglas Dauntlesses. Those are real garbage planes that are going to be uh, they're going to be retired early on in this war, but yeah, hey, you got 19 of them. They're going to have seven Wildcats. They're going to have uh, 17 Vindicators. They're going to have 21 Brewster Buffaloes. The United States Army Air Force is going to contribute a total of 17 B-17 Flying Fortresses, uh, four Martin B-26 Marauders equipped with torpedoes. That's a long laundry list of airplanes, but Brendan, in total, 126 aircraft just on the land-based aspect of it. So that's about two aircraft carriers worth of airplanes sitting on the runways at Midway. Right. So if you think about it, the U.S. has four aircraft carriers. They have the three on the sea and they have Midway Island, which is a land-based aircraft carrier in my mind. So that is a that is a lot of aircraft, and that's not even including the aircraft that are on the Yorktown, the Hornet, or... Uh, the Enterprise. So the, the Americans are bringing a lot of airplanes to this fight. The Japanese are also going to bring a lot to this fight, but there's a lot of airplanes on the defense here. Yeah, and it's that's the thing. And that's, and an that, even, and that's all about... It's an even game. That, yeah, so that's Nimitz's strategy. I am just going to bring as much firepower as I can to Midway to defeat 
the Japanese here and defeat them in battle on the defense so we could turn this war. So some things that were working in Admiral Nimitz's favor are some shortcomings that the Japanese have. So during the Battle of the Coral Sea one month earlier, the Japanese light carrier Shohu had been sunk, while the fleet carrier Shokaku had been severely damaged by three bombs, while the fleet carrier Shikaku had been severely damaged by three bomb hits and was in dry dock for months of repair. Although the fleet carrier Zukaku escaped the battle undamaged, she had lost almost half of her air group and was imported at the Kure Naval District in Hiroshima, awaiting replacement planes and pilots. That there were no planes or pilots available was a major failure of the IGN crew training program, which already showed signs of being unable to replace losses. So Bjorn to make up for the shortcoming. So Bjorn, they had to pull in instructors from the Yokosuka Air Corps and employ them in the bat in the battle to make up for that shortfall. So like now Joel, you're talking about like future shortfalls of pilots now. <laughs> so you're telling me that they took the the pilot, the teachers, they said, yeah. Hey, you know everything there needs to be known about flying a plane get in this plane and fight in this battle. Yeah. Who's going to teach the other people who don't know how to fly? That's going to be a major problem for the Japanese in the future. Um, yeah, I think that it just shows how important the Battle of Midway was to, uh, to the plan for the Japanese, right? We need everything that we have to defeat these carriers. Because if they defeat the carriers, then like the shortfall pilots doesn't really matter anymore, right? The, they'll figure that out. But if they can d- destroy these aircraft carriers, like that's the game. Right, that's the game. But at the same time, well, what's the emphasis on doing it right now? Why can't we train up some more planes? Why can't we, or pilots, why can't we get more planes? Why do we have to attack Midway today? Why can't we do it next month? Why can't we do it the month after that? Right. What is what is stopping us? That, that That is a really good question. And I think the Japanese just, like, I think it was a little bit to what Yamamoto said to the prime minister earlier, right? I could fight for six months, right? If we wait any longer, the Americans will go on the offense. Right. So this is the time for us to destroy the aircraft carriers. And I think that's just like that was in their minds. Like we have to do this as fast as possible. Otherwise, all the gains that we made are going to be gone. And we'll throw the dice. Throw the Let's dice. Do it. That's right. So this is interesting. So historians Jonathan Parshall and Anthony Tully believed that by combining the surviving aircraft and pilots from Shokoku. Historians Jonathan Parshall and Anthony Tully believe that by combining the surviving aircraft and pilots from Shukaku and Zukaku, it is likely the Zukaku could have been equipped with almost a full composite air group. They also note, however, that doing so would have violated Japanese carrier doctrine, which we've already talked about, right? The Japanese aren't going to do that because that's not what their books say to do, even though they could have, and they could have brought another carrier to the fight, which might have turned the tide. They just didn't do that. So now they take two carriers and two air groups out of the fight instead of one full carrier and air group going with, which is crazy to me. Like, how do you not have that flexibility? Yeah, that the rigid aspect of the Japanese Navy is going to be a serious detriment to their ability to fight in this war. We need a new house rule for Axis and allies. You're, the, you and go, the airplanes yeah. with the carriers have to stay with the carriers. Exactly. <laughs> once they originate with the plane, once they originate with the carrier, they stay with That's the right. carrier. So because of that, Bjorn, Carrier Division 5, consisting of the two most advanced aircraft carriers of the Kido Batai, were not available, which meant that Vice Admiral Nagumo had only two-thirds of the fleet carriers at his disposal. So he had Kaga and Akagi, and they formed Carrier Division 1, Hiru and Soryu making up Carrier Division 2. Also, apologies, I'm not good at speaking Japanese. I I think you're doing a really good job. I think you're doing a really good job. Thank you, my friend from Minnesota. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yeah, so... Nagumo only has these four carriers. And this is partly due to fatigue, right? These carriers have been constantly operating since the attack on Pearl Harbor in December of 1941. So the first carrier strike force sails with 248 available aircraft on the four carriers. 
60 on the Akagi, 74 on Kaga, 57 on Hiryu, and 57 on Soryu. So that is more aircraft right than the American. No, that's more aircraft than the Americans have on Midway. I don't think it's more aircraft than the Americans have in total. No, it's going to be about even. About but even. just think about that. They're going in. Nagumo's going in with two thirds of his available forces because of the rigid aspect of their naval doctrine. Right. So if he would have brought the Zukaku in, he could have had another at least 60 aircraft, right? Yeah. And and that could have either resulted in, you know, American carriers lost or maybe the Japanese carrier lost. lost. (laughs) I don't don't know the answer there, but but this seems like a serious uh, problem. Like, why, why would you not bring this? Why can't you flex your muscle and bring your full force? There's really no answer or reason why. So the main Japanese carrier-borne strike aircraft were the D-3A-1 Val dive bombers and the B-5N-2 Kates, which were used either as torpedo bombers or as a level bomber. The main carrier fighter was the fast and highly maneuverable A-6M-0. For a variety of reasons, production of the Val had been drastically reduced while that of the Kate had been stopped completely. And as a consequence, they were not available to replace losses. In addition, many of the aircraft being used during the June 1942 operations had been operational since late November 1941. And although they were well-maintained, many were almost worn out and become increasingly unreliable. These factors meant all carriers of the Kido Butai had fewer aircraft than their normal complement, with few spare aircraft or parts stored in the carrier's hangars. So not only do they have a lack of pilots, but they have a lack of spare parts and they have a lack of reliable aircraft. This does not seem like a reliable endeavor. No. And, you know, I think as we talk more about operation, military operations in the modern era, right, we're talking about vehicles. We always we're going to talk about fuel a lot. But the other thing to remember is these parts are so important. Military vehicles break down all the time. Like when somebody says, you know, Ford says this truck is military grade. That's not good. Like these things break down all the time. <laughs> They're getting shot at. They're operating in harsh conditions. It's hot. It's cold. You know, the, all these aircraft are flying in the Pacific Ocean. It's full of salt water. That stuff wears on these vehicles. And you need spare parts to maintain operations. And they just don't have that. So it's kind of like, Bjorn, this might also be the thing is like, if we don't fight now, these planes aren't going to be available to us in six months. Well, and that might actually be one of the major reasons in the fact that you had said that they had completely stopped production of the Kate and they had really drastically reduced the production of the Val. Maybe they're looking at this saying in the foreseeable future, we do not believe that we're going to have enough aircraft to sustain an offensive move. So we must do it absolutely right now. And, you know, real quick uh, bullet point note here, uh, the Val and the Kate uh, those are not actually the names of these Japanese aircraft. They're what the American yeah. soldiers nicknamed those planes because the Japanese uh, name was too difficult for two individuals. Or 19-year-old sailors to say. To, yeah. yeah, trying to pronounce these. All right, so in addition to all of that we just talked about, Nagumo's carrier force also suffered from several defensive deficiencies, which gave it, in military historian Mark Petey's words, a glass jaw. The Japanese could throw a punch, but the Japanese could not take one back. So the Japanese carrier, anti-aircraft guns, and the associated fire control systems had several design and configuration change deficiencies, which limited their effectiveness. And these are extremely important. We just talked about how many aircraft the Americans are bringing to this fight. You need your anti-aircraft guns. And to have them not be operational is bad news. It's bad news. Um, The IGN's fleet combat air patrol consisted of too few fighter aircraft, and were hampered by an inadequate early warning system, including a lack of radar. Not only did they have poor radar, but they had 
poor radio communications with their aircraft carriers. So it's going to be difficult for them to effectively command and control the cap. Now, yeah, uh, what, quick, what is the cap? You know, yeah, the cap, the combat air patrol was a, a series of fighter planes that would consistently be circling around the aircraft carrier during uh, a time of combat. So you you need you don't have enough time to get your fighters off the runway when you see your enemy's torpedo planes on the horizon. And so during the Battle of Midway, the Japanese had a cap, a combat air patrol that was constantly circling their aircraft, providing that high level cover when the American planes came in to attack. And those would be utilized in order to uh, defend the carriers. That was their entire job. You protect the carrier. Mm -hmm. But as we're going to say here, they've got poor radar. They have a poor early warning system. They have poor radio communications with their aircraft carriers. So if the guys in the fighter planes don't see the American torpedo planes or the dive bombers, how do they intercept them? How does the carrier warn this cap that American forces are on their way? That's going to be a problem. Then it will be a distinctive hole in the Japanese defense. As we will see in the second episode, what happens with the Japanese cap when multiple air squadrons zero in on the same carrier at the same time. In modern naval doctrine, you know, we talk about the carrier task force, right? So you have the carrier and then you have a whole bunch of ships that are pretty close by that provide layers of defense to that aircraft carrier because that carrier is so important and it's so expensive to replace, you can't lose it, right? So when you look at like how Americans look at their carrier task force, like there's layers of defense, you know, submarines, cruisers, destroyers, caps, anti-air, like and they all have anti-aircraft guns to protect against an attack. The problem with well, it, and yeah, what happened? Why, what were the Japanese doing instead? The Japanese. Not only did the Japanese have an in, have an insignificant amount of fighters circling in their cap, but they also have spread their warships out as uh, utilizing utilizing visual. Let me start yeah. over. So, not only have the Japanese provided an insufficient number of planes to perform that combat air patrol to protect their aircraft carriers. But they've also spread their warships out in a way that they will be utilized as visual scouts. Because remember, they only have seven, seven uh, reconnaissance yeah. planes. It's just nonsense. So they're going to spread their ships out in a long ring at long range in order to be utilizing that aspect for scouting to try and find the enemy. But they're not close in as anti-aircraft escorts. That's going to be a major problem mm-hmm. for the Japanese. All right, let's dig a little bit deeper into uh, some of the issues that the Japanese had with uh, with scouting. So they had a picket line of submarines that were late to get into position, by the way, partly because Yamamoto was trying to go so fast, he, his submarines couldn't get out in time. Uh, so the submarines were not in the right position that they needed to be in for reconnaissance. So that let the American carriers reach their assembly point northeast of Midway, and would just point luck without being detected. So the submarines were supposed to be out in the ocean trying to find the carriers, and they missed they missed the Americans. Uh, so that that's one thing. There was also a second attempt at reconnaissance using four-engine H-8K Emily flying boats to scout Pearl Harbor prior to the battle and detect whether the American carriers were present. Part of Operation K was thwarted when Japanese submarines assigned to refuel the search aircraft discovered that the intended refueling point, a hitherto deserted bay off French frigate Shoals, was now occupied by American warships because the Japanese had carried out an identical mission in March. Thus, Japan was deprived of any knowledge concerning the movements of the American carriers immediately before the battle. So the Japanese had no idea what the Americans were doing. I think that's interesting that the Japanese had shown their hand to the Americans with that refueling program. Yeah. You know, these these 
submarines were going to meet up with these large flying boats. The boats were, you know, these planes had the pontoons on them. They'd land on the ocean. They'd get refueled from the from the submarine and then they'd take off for more movements and maneuvers. But when you do it once and the Americans figure out, now you try a second time and guess what? We were wise on them. The Japanese show their hand and that's going to not work a second time. Japanese radio intercepts did notice an increase in both American submarine activity and message traffic. This information was in Yamamoto's hands prior to the battle. So the Japanese plans did not change though. Yamamoto, who was at sea in Yamato, assumed Nagumo had received the same signal from Tokyo and did not communicate with him by radio so as to not reveal his position. One thing about signals intelligence, when you use your radio to communicate, you know, it's encrypted, right? So theoretically, the Americans can't hear what you're saying, but the Americans can see where the signal is coming from. So Yamamoto did not want to give away his position by using, you know, by emitting an electronic uh, signature into the ether, right? So he figured that, I got the message. Nagumo also should have got the message. So there was no communication. But that's that's an interesting concept because you're telling me that the Japanese noticed that the Americans had increased their uh, signals, had increased their messages. And so they picked that up. They said, whoa, there's more activity going on here. But at the same time, they were refraining from performing any form of activity yeah. because of their fear of being seen. Wouldn't you have kind of sat back and said, wait, this is a little bit... Uh, out of the ordinary, yeah. Maybe we should, maybe we should reassess. Maybe we should send out more reconnaissance planes. Maybe we should bring in our fleet a little bit closer to provide close air support and some anti-aircraft performances. Maybe we should increase the cap size. There's so many different yeah. things that you could do while still continuing your offensive right. maneuvers. But it doesn't seem like he makes any form of yeah. adjustments. Neither whatsoever. Yamamoto or Nagumo change anything about their plan or take any additional precautions. So. Those are like a lot. That was a long list of things that Japanese did not do right uh, leading up to this battle. What now? Here's the question, though, Brendan. Had those not happened, what do you think about this battle? Would the Japanese have been able to win, or would it have just been a closer call than it truly was? I mean, there's always the luck that plays into this thing, right? And you know, maybe without the shortcomings, if they had a full contingent of aircraft, maybe the Japanese could have dis- defeated or destroyed the land-based aircraft on midway and made the plan happen right like maybe they if they would have heard the stuff they could have you know made the defensive ring tighter to prevent the americans from sinking every carrier that the japanese had right like so i think like yeah if they would have fixed all these shortcomings there's a good chance that they could have won this but here's a question though given all the japanese shortcomings if one thing was not different had they tightened every single thing up but the United States code-breaking efforts had still played into this game. Oh, I don't think... When you know exactly what your enemy's going to do, it kind of makes everything a little easier. So, yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I yeah. think this game was up before it even began. Let's talk about the code-breaking, yes. so the is, American intelligence. This is, uh, this is a huge part of the Battle of Midway. Um, so, I mean, Admiral Nimitz had one critical advantage during this fight. U.S. naval cryptanalysts had partially broken the Japanese Navy's JN-25B code. Since early 1942, the U.S. had been decoding messages stating that there would soon be an operation at Objective AF. It was initially not known where AF was. Captain Wilfred Holmes devised a ruse of telling the base at Midway by secure undersea communications cables that cannot be intercepted to broadcast an uncoded radio message stating that Midway's water purification system had broken down. Within 24 hours, the code breakers picked up a Japanese message that AF was short of water. So, yeah. 
that signal to the Navy that AF was indeed Midway and that an attack was imminent on Midway. You know, I think that's one of the most like sneaky things, but at the same time, you almost want to slap the Japanese individual in the face and say, can you believe that you fell for that trick? Like they're, they're, they're playing it in the open. Yeah. If you are in fact, and it was not right. Why would the Americans say such such a critical thing uncoded? Yeah, it's it's water. If it was like, oh hey, you know, uh, our backup generator broke down, like big deal. But this is your ability to have water. Yeah, I I just I'm disappointed in the Japanese <laughs> performance here because of that exact. Like show a little you critical analysis. Like a, this is like a childish ruse yeah. that that they fell yeah. for. So no Japanese radio operators who intercepted the message seemed concerned at all that the Americans were broadcasting uncoded that a major naval insta- installation close to the Japanese threat ring was having a water problem, which could have tipped off Japanese intelligence officers that it was a deliberate attempt at deception. Not a single person in Japan thought that that was an issue. So Hypo, also known as Fleet Radio Unit Pacific, was also able to determine the date of the attack as either 4 or 5 June and to provide Nimitz with a complete IJN order of battle. You're on an order of battle is like a chart of every single unit that belongs to Yamamoto. So it's going to list out all of Yamamoto's carriers. Like, so it's going to, and it'll be by unit, right? So like, here's our carrier strike force under Nagumo. And then here's the task forces, uh, you know, the two carrier divisions underneath Nagumo. And then it'll have like all the you know, cruisers and submarines and destroyers. We do the same thing with the army, right? Like, you have your division, then you break it down to how many brigades are under, under that division, then how many battalions are under the brigades, and then how many companies are under those battalions, so on and so forth. So we knew so, where the attack was happening. We knew when it was happening. And we knew exactly what the Japanese were attacking. Those are that's, like the three things you kind of want to know about your enemy's battle plan. <laughs> it's not. We were, the United States was reading the Japanese mail like straight it, up. Basically. Every single thing we knew. Yeah. I can't believe it. The, the whole order of battle. So prior to this, our American admirals, Admiral Nimitz, was able to lay out his battle plan in response to what he knew was going to right. happen. And that's why Nimitz you know, worked so hard to get the Saratoga up and sailing again, right? He knew the battle was happening on 4 or 5 June. He knew he had a couple, like he needed to just operate for a couple of weeks. He knew he needed these aircraft. So that's why they were so fast in repairing the Saratoga uh, was because he knew exactly what the Japanese were doing. If he didn't know, they probably wanted to fix it so fast. It's so crazy to think that, uh, you know, normally when these battles occur, people are making moves in real time, making adjustments to intelligence that is coming in in real time. But we have it ahead of time. The American forces have this information ahead of time, and the Japanese forces do nothing to change their tactics, even though they're given a few, maybe potentially minor hints that something's going on, but they are provided with those those small adjustments that they could have made in order to change the the trajectory of this battle. But when you're when your mail is being read, good luck. Yeah. So Nimitz then calculated that the aircraft on his three carriers, plus those on Midway Island, gave the US rough parity with Yamamoto's four carriers, mainly because American carrier air groups were larger than the Japanese ones. The Japanese, by contrast, remained largely unaware of their opponents' true strength and dispositions even after the battle. So Bjorn. That is where we will leave off today with Japanese and American planes ready to take off at a battle that within four minutes will drastically change the course of World War II and maybe even world history. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the exciting details of the Battle of Midway two weeks from today. MMG out.